0: We're in Ephesians 2, chapter, or verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, How the grass withers and the flower fades. This, the word of the Lord, stands forever. You, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, giving it to us to, to help us um, hear your voice and understand your will for us and understand what you have done for us. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in us now Um, as we interact with your word and draw us into relationship with you. Amen. You may be seated. So, I'm going to start a timer really quick. It's for all your old sake. So I read this story this week about uh, Christopher Hitchens, Um, a man who was known before his death as one of the most influential atheists of the era. Um, There's been a little bit of controversy over this story, and I want to recognize that. Um, But the story is a good one, and I wanted to share it. See, Hitchens um, actually became good friends with another man, Larry Taunton, um, he's a Christian author who actually worked with, with Hitchens to schedule the debates that he was famous for with Christian thinkers. And over the years, they became friends and spent a lot of time together. And, and Taunton told a story about this moment during a road trip with Hitchens um, that they were sharing sometime after his, his cancer diagnosis. They're driving through Virginia, and Hitchens is in the car reading John, of all things, chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. And he comes to verse 25 and 26. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Hitchens stops and says, I know this one, too. I did not recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. And Taunton jumps on the opportunity and says, "Eh, it's a great verse. And Hitchens turns to Taunton and says in a sarcastic tone, which he's known for, but one that Taunton says uh, is lacking its customary force. He says, do you believest thou this, Larry Taunton? He responds, well, I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believe this? And after an unusual moment of hesitation from Hitchens, he says, I'll admit that's not without appeal to a dying man. There's debate about the story. There's debate about the book that it comes from people in Hitchens' camp and family um, have thrown a little shade about Taunton's suggestions that Hitchens wasn't as sold out to his atheism, as he says. It's not the issue. I'm not here to, to claim that Hitchens was, you know, less the diehard anti-theist than he pretended. But the story says something. We're going to talk about resurrection today. Actually, I, pre- I preached this passage on Easter one year. And resurrection is the central claim of the church. It's the keystone of our faith. And whatever you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we all have to admit, if only for a brief moment, that if it is true, the implication that it has for dying men and women is profound. And in case there's any Confusion. I want to make two statements, make them absolutely clear from here. First, we are all dying men and women. There's no way around it to deny it as foolishness. And second, the resurrection is exactly why we follow Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus Christ is to believe in the resurrection. It is the heart of our belief, that Jesus Christ, the son of God, took on real humanity, actually died a physical death, and then literally, not figuratively, not in some story, but literally raised from the dead in his physical body. And that body is alive today, seated at the right hand of God. To deny the resurrection is to deny Christ. Full stop, it's non-negotiable. Because without the resurrection, none of the promises of Christ have any bearing. This is why Paul makes the resurrection central to his argument here to the Ephesians. Last week we talked about God's power, this power that is greater than all other powers. And Paul had the the audacity to say that it was demonstrated the most clearly not in an act of creation, not in an act of warfare and might, but in the act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said in chapter 1, 19 through 22, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And, And let's think about it. Jesus overcame death. That's the claim of Christianity. That one power that defeats all of us, doesn't matter who you are, Doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done in your life, how much wealth or power or prestige that you've built up, death wins. It beats us all. Death is the scariest, biggest, most unstoppable power that the universe knows. Every single culture has pictured death in this way death is a deeply powerful force. That's why the claim of resurrection is so absurd. No one escapes death. And it's why it's so powerful in every culture that it's presented in. Because no one escapes death. In this story, we know that death is more than just a power. It's the ultimate curse. Like We are told in Scripture that death is the consequence, the ultimate consequence of all human rebellion against God. That in sin we will surely die, we're told in Genesis. Words that express the unescapable power of death for all of humanity. And then even Jesus dies, even God dies. Many times throughout history when Christianity came into a new culture um, and was presented to people, it was mocked as that religion where the God dies. You worship that dying God. God. God himself defeated by death, proving its unmatched power. But then Jesus does the unthinkable. He gets up. In his human body, and that's very important, not just some spiritual Jesus dies as a man and then kind of comes back as God, but he walks out of the tomb alive. And Jesus rising means that he is God of gods. He is the mightiest power. That not even death has authority over him. But him rising in the flesh means something even more. And that's what Paul is leveraging today. Jesus' victory over death is the greatest story of power the world has ever known. And that's great for Jesus. He gets to do that, right? Because he's God. But... We're not. <laughs> and Paul here, after affirming the unsurpassable power of resurrection, churns and reminds us that we're not God, that we're still dead. And he doesn't mince words. You were dead. You could not overcome that power, that curse. You, me, Christopher Hitchens, everyone is a slave to death. There's that old joke, now it's a meme that comes across my feeds regularly. You know, the, the guy is having a, having a heart attack on the plane and somebody else says, is there a doctor here? And someone says, I'm a doctor, a philosophy. Says, this man is dying. He says, well, we all die. It's <laughs> funny. So many songs and poems and books and films and jokes dwell on this reality. We all live our lives with that old image of the memento mori in front of our faces, knowing that we are headed towards the grave. And it's not just literal death. I mean, literal death is like. But we live every day with death all around us. Quite frankly, in our broken state, the theme of life is death. That's the theme. We live in a decaying world. Entropy is one of our greatest scientific properties. There's violence and warfare and oppression and sickness and mental illness and grief and heartache and lost hopes and you name it. There's death. Shakespeare claims that it's the coward that dies many deaths, but the reality, it's every single one of us that dies many deaths. It's what we humans do. And Paul reminds us of this. He reminds us of our sin and our trespass because sin is the source of death. And I know sin is an incredibly unpopular word in our culture. And we actually don't understand it. Even in the church, we don't understand it. Sin has become this thing that represents our ethical choices, right? Failure to follow a list of do's and don'ts, but let me tell you, sin is way bigger than that. If we look back on sin's entrance into the world in Genesis 3, we see that it's something so much bigger than just don't do this and do that. It is a fracturing and a twisting and a perverting of God's very good creation. It is the complete deviation from God's purposes that all happened at the fall. It's the breaking of the world. It's the destruction of our relationships. It is what we do, but it's also built into who we are and the world that we live in. Paul describes this by calling us children of disobedience. That's our heritage. Children of sin, children of brokenness, children of decay children of death. It's in our very nature. And as much as we hate the concept of sin, honestly, we know that it's true. Every single one of us, religious, irreligious, we know it. Deep in our bones, we don't call it the same thing. We might push against it, but we know it. Like, do you really feel like this world is what it was meant to be? Do you turn on your news feed and think, yeah, this makes sense? (laughs) Do you see suffering and sickness and grief and hatred and oppression and not think something's wrong? Do you really look at yourself and feel like you are who you meant to be? Every aspect of our lives are broken: our choices, our physiology, our relationships, our desires, our very identities. You can call that what you will, but Scripture calls that sin. And very few people would deny that whatever that is that it exists. And the powers that Paul is addressing in Ephesians, the world, the devil, and the flesh, these are the natural inheritors of a world and a people that are broken in sin. And he names them here. I've been throwing those terms around for the last few Sundays. but This is where they come from in Ephesians, right in this passage. And he ties them to sin and trespass. He says, we're dead in sin and trespass. He says that we're following the world, its strife and its hatred and its conflict. He says that we're following the prince of the air. This is the devil. Deeply beholden to those evils that we fear. He says we are living in the passions of our flesh, giving ourselves to perversion and greed and pride and any number of vices. And Paul tells us this is all of us, every single one of us. No matter who you are or where you come from, no matter how much you've built up or how much you've worked on your own identity or how much you've done anything, you are dead in these things. And in time, you will succumb to death itself. Man, that's bleak. Sorry. Sorry. I can't do anything about it. I'm under the same curse. I'm living in and marching towards the same death that everyone else is. None of us can do anything about it. But God. Those two words in verse 4 are beautiful. Verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, caring about the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. But God, being rich in mercy. But God. You are all dead. There is nothing you can do about it. But God. You are a slave to the world, the devil, and the flesh, but God. All is tragedy, all is suffering, all is sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together in Christ. This is why the resurrection of the body is so important, by the way. Jesus' resurrection proves... That not only can God overcome death, but in Christ, weak human beings can overcome death as well. And Jesus takes his body out of the grave. And he takes us out of the grave with him. This is why we're here. This is why the resurrection is so essential to our belief. Our hope is the truth that God, the one who was rebelled against in the first place, the one whose very good creation was shattered and perverted by the sin and death of our rebellion, the one offended, the one insulted, the one abused, the one demeaned by our trespass doesn't leave us in the hands of sin. Doesn't surrender us over to the world and the devil and the flesh, but he rejects death as the theme of our life. And he does this by sending his son to take on our frailty, to face death for us, and then to defeat death once and for all. But God made us alive with Christ. This is the good news to dying men and women. He takes the unequaled power of Christ's resurrection, a power integral to Jesus himself. He applies it to us dead people And he resurrects us with Jesus Christ. Like, literally. Yeah, there's a whole lot of figurative speech in here that we can apply over all these areas of life, but, you know, if you just want it cut and dry, you and I who will still die, one day will step out of the grave. Literally. We believe in resurrection. These bodies will be risen and renewed This creation will be made new and repaired and we will live resurrected with him forever. And I know that's crazy. But it's true. Like really true. And because it's true, this means that death has no hold over us. And neither do the powers that ally itself with it. You who are dead in your sins are now alive in Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate every Sunday. Partially because it's amazing. God is powerful. But mostly for kind of selfish reasons. Because the fact that he is risen, it means that we are risen as well in him. But wait there's even more. Like that isn't enough. Paul then turns and he wants the Ephesians and us to understand something, that not only are they free from the reality of death, not only are they raised with Christ, but they are also seated at the right hand of God, victorious over the power of sin and death. See, in him you have overcome death and in him you are free from the power that once oppressed you. This is a theme that's repeated over and over again in Ephesians. In him, you are seated at the right hand of God over all of the enemies of this life. He has had victory so that we can sit victoriously. And who we are as the church flows from that position of victory. Not just a position of being rescued and resurrected. Those are true. But it flows from this position of being seated with Christ above these powers of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And if we come to accept that and hold on to that, that is... That changes the whole dynamic of who we are. But here's the question that I ask because I'm self-loathing and I always ask myself this question. Why? Why? Why does God, who is this powerful, do this for me? It's quite simple. It's because this all-powerful God is as all-loving as he is all-powerful. Last week, we saw, that, we saw this threefold statement from Paul, this kind of what would be grammatical redundance in English, about God's power, that immeasurable greatness of his power. This week, we see another threefold statement. This is God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and actually mercy here in the Greek, um, is a word that translates uh, an Old Testament Hebrew word, and one of the most important words in Scripture, chesed, which is the covenant, steadfast, faithful love of God, the love that he specifically has for his people, his loving kindness. And so what this verse says is in his steadfast covenant love, because of the great love with which he loves us, he made us alive in Christ. And that, you know, redundance in English in Greek speaks, speaks to a love that is so immeasurable. God could have left us to our own devices, dead in sin, slaves of the world, the devil in the flesh. This is the natural outcome of sin. It is what was deserved. But he loves us. And love, I have come to see, is God's greatest attribute. And here it is, the very picture of his power. So he sent his son, that manifestation not just of his power, but also of his love, to live and die for us, to die in our sin and trespass, And to be raised from the dead so that we might be raised in him. Not, Paul says, because we've earned it. Not because of our works. Because we who are dead have nothing to offer. But he does this by grace. This unmerited gift of God's love. Paul says it twice. Once because he can't contain himself and just blurts it out and then wants to punctuate this passage. He does it by grace for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, which I think if you're reading the passage right is also said to be grace. He loves you. You sons and daughters of disobedience, he loves you. And so he takes you, and he makes you his sons and daughters. And he seats you above all earthly powers with Jesus Christ. And so what that means for us, living our day-to-day lives, which honestly often still have the stink of death all over them. We who often don't feel resurrected, let alone seated in power, what do we do? I think that's pretty straightforward as well. Here are the two things that I think we do. One, we believe. We talk a lot about belief, it's very important. We believe, we trust, we have faith, we hope. Paul is telling you, I am telling you that all of this is true. It's not some crazy idea. Cracked up in some room over there to sell Bibles. It's true. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He literally took on humanity. He was crucified and he died because of our sin. And on the third day, he rose from the tomb victorious over death. Believe it. But also believe that you were dead in your sin. You are too broken to save yourself. You are a slave to the world and the devil and the flesh like all the rest of us. But by the grace of God, because of his love, if you believe, you too will step out of the tomb and have victory over the world and the devil and the flesh. Believe this in no resurrection. Know it. Now you know it in part, still seeing the grip of the world and the devil in the flesh, that curse of death, trying to hold on but starting to slip away. But someday you will know it in full a renewed person in a renewed creation where every tear is dried and all things are made new. That's the first thing. Believe. Second, we need to see that as resurrected people in Christ, you are called to a resurrected life. This whole passage is framed um, by this thing we call an inclusio. And that's when, when a, a passage or an idea is, it begins and ends with a Similar idea that holds everything else in that tension. In verses 1 and 2, it said, in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, describing our life under death. And then in verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea of walking a path This is a picture of our life, our purpose, our conduct. One that in Paul's understanding once was characterized by death, sin, and trespass. But now we are resurrected and we are alive. And our walk changes into something that is characterized not by death, but by Jesus Christ. Paul firmly rejects works as the basis of our salvation. Let's not be confused. But he also recognizes something, that when we are made alive in Christ, when we are taken away from that old grip of death, something changes. Our lives take on a new direction. And he will delve into this in detail in the second half of his letter. But for now, brothers and sisters, understand, if you are alive in Christ, you have been placed on a new path, one that is no longer a march towards death. It is no longer a path of worldly animosity. It is no longer a path of oppression and fear of the devil. It is no longer a path of the passions of the flesh is a path of the righteousness and justice and peace of Jesus Christ. It's a path of love. You will not always walk it well. Trust me. It's an incredibly difficult path, and it is a lifelong struggle. But to be alive in Christ is to walk a new path. And to do so with a new confidence that you share the power of God that was manifested in Christ, that you have access to that power of resurrection. Jesus Christ has brought you to this. He who was dead in our sin has overcome death. And by the grace of God, we who are dead in our sin have overcome death and been resurrected in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what what an amazing thing you have done for us. That you have, have turned the direction of all of your power and authority and might towards the singular purpose of restoring us. That you have looked at us, sons and daughters of disobedience, and have seen someone that you love and sent your son to live and die and be raised again so that we might be raised again. We pray, Father, that your resurrection, that that life would be central to who we understand ourselves to be as your church, as your people, and as individuals. Grow us in that confidence, God, by the power of your Spirit. In the name of your Son, amen.